I'm Peyton. This is the Rhizomatic Reader Podcast. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Leo Queen about Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca. You can find the shorter, edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Let me turn up my volume. Can you say something? You can hear me or no? Loud and clear. Loud and clear. Thanks for your, for your infinite patience. Oh, you know what? I am so happy to be infinitely patient with you, best friend. What are you looking at? Um, your attachment. Oh, okay, so you see that there's like a lot of stuff in there. There is a lot of things. Okay, I'm clearly I'm not gonna have time to read through it now. No, but... no, 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 no. That's okay. You don't have to read through it. Um, it just helps me uh, to think about stuff as we uh, go through the chat here. Right. And I oh, got. Let me put my phone on airplane mode. That's what I did. So I can give the rhizomatic reader all of my undivided attention. Well, that would be lovely. The, the, the listeners and our supporters will be so glad to have nothing but two hours with you. All right. So now this is where you start being facetious. So let's just, <laughs> let's no, just get not, the show rolling. Not give me facetious. a minute so I don't hyperventilate. You're nervous? Um, a little bit. Why? Because, um, are you recording yet? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, th- well, this obviously we've talked about this before. This is my first time doing something like this, so I want to make sure I do it justice. And this is a very good, a very good book. So I want to make sure I talk about it in a manner that's sufficient. Well, you will. Uh, I have no doubt about that. So you don't have to worry. Just pretend like we're talking like a normal day and well, like that'll, been, that'll be good. Like we've been talking all weekend. Well, right. And that's the thing. We always have these conversations. They're just not in podcast format. Yeah. It's sort of like what Edwin said a few weeks ago, right? Where he was like, Oh, it was cool to finally be able to record a conversation that we have and just see where it goes. Let it meander, you know, yeah. it's going to be okay. Um, and there's editing and all of that involved. So I'm just glad you're here. Thanks for supporting yeah. the thanks for supporting the effort, the podcast, being a part of it from the beginning. I, know, I feel I feel like a a veteran in some sense because I know all the underworkings and everything that went into making it happen. So I'm excited to be here too. Awesome. Well, it wouldn't be happening without you because you told me I should just do it. So just do it. And now I'm it's just, taking off. It's taking off. It is. This is episode six. Already. Episode Already. <clears throat> yep. Six very different books. So I'm glad we haven't talked about this yet, mm-hmm. but I know it was giving you some consternation for the past couple of weeks. I want to know about your reading life, the history of your reading life, how you think about that. 
Um, <clears throat> okay, so you're right. I have given it a lot of thought over these past couple of weeks because um, I didn't know exactly how I wanted to frame it. So I really had to go really deep into my mental file cabinet to, to conjure up a memory about my reading life. Because when I initially thought about it, um, I actually didn't do much reading and that's just not true. My perception of reading um, is just very different or it was very different. Um, so my initial thought was, well, you know, I didn't do much reading, but I realized over these past couple of weeks, the reason that I felt that way is because every bit of reading or not, maybe not every bit, but most of the reading that I did in my, uh, in my youth life was because it was assigned for class. Mm -hmm. And I never liked that. So, um, when you say, so when you say you didn't do a lot of reading, you're talking about when you were younger? Yes. Okay. I didn't do, I didn't do a lot of pleasure reading, I guess is the way to frame it. Okay. Um, because most of what I read was school-based reading. Um, and there was always a grade attached to it or mm. some type of marking, satisfactory, not satisfactory, mm. um, that type of deal. So that I never liked that reading. And then there, there was always uh, deadlines attached to that type of reading. And you're my best friend, so you know that <laughs> it takes me a while to do things sometimes. I always do it, but sometimes it takes a while to get around to it. Um, especially if you don't give me a deadline. If you don't give me a deadline, good luck. But mm -hmm. um, so I never liked that type of reading. And so I thought about it on a deeper level. And I actually still kind of deal with a certain type of trauma about literacy. Oh, my gosh. I have never been a great standardized test taker at all. So I remember, you know, coming up through elementary school and middle school, it got better in high school, but definitely elementary and middle school when I was really young, every time we would take these state standardized tests to move on to the next grade level, math, I'd be great, excellent scores, social studies, great, science and reading and comprehension would always be my lowest. So that made me feel bad about myself i internalized that um mm. and if i'm just being blunt about it i really felt stupid mm -hmm. because i didn't understand why i was always scoring low on reading comprehension the writing parts i did pretty well on those but when it came to comprehension that was always my lowest mark and it wasn't my lowest mark by the by a few percent percentage points it was my lowest mark by a lot um, and that made me feel really bad about myself. And then when you're that young, everything is about your person. So it, it made me, it didn't make me feel like um, a good student. And I never understood it because I worked so hard at school. Um, I, you know, I was the nerdy kid. I made all A's and, and things like that. But when it came to those standardized tests, man, that really traumatized me. Um, I think yeah. traumas, I think trauma is like a great word for it. And I'm glad, see, this is why I'm glad we didn't talk about this before today, because 
nobody thus far has talked about standardized testing and what it did to its to their person's relationship to mm -hmm. reading. So what you're saying is getting these low marks on comprehension disrupted any reading reading became traumatic. It became something that was not for pleasure or for joy or anything. It became a task and traumatizing. Yes, very much so. That's a good way to, to put it. It was reading for me was always task oriented. It was never something that I chose to do because it was, you know, the kind of the mind, I was in the mindset that, well, it doesn't matter if I read books because I'm going to be tested on it and I'm going to score low. I'm going to score low on it anyway. So it was never something that I actively chose to pursue on my own. Um, so that, that, that's what my, my reading life was, um, at that point in my life. So then I reflected more on that question and you know, if there, there are two sides to it. So yes, I didn't do a lot of, I didn't enjoy a lot of school-based reading, but I actually did a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. So that's, that goes back to the, the part where I said, you know, I had to really dig deep into my filing cabinet to, to think about something. And I actually did do a lot of reading. Um, I read the newspaper from cover to cover um, religiously. I, I remember being excited that my mom finally got us a newspaper subscription. So we wow. get the newspaper every day. Uh -huh. um, and it would be an activity that I did every day after school. Like it was part of my routine. I go to <laughs> school, I come home, put my backpack down, change out of my school clothes. And the first thing that I would do is look for the newspaper. Mm. Um, that was the reading that I enjoyed doing because, um, and I don't know if this will come up at some point in the podcast, but um, I have, I really like nonfiction. Like I like real life accounts, biographies, um, things like that. And naturally because I am a, a big sports person. I, that's the first thing that I would do. So I would read the sports, the sports section uh, to see what had gone on, um, yeah. you know, during the day or, you know, in, at last night's NBA finals game five or, or something like that. And it was, I would get mad at my older sister if she would read the newspaper before I did. Hmm. <laughs> because I wanted to be the first one in the house with the knowledge. Um, and yeah, so, so I, I read the newspaper religiously. I know that sounds foreign today in 2020. People are like, what's a newspaper? But, um, and I actually do miss that. I miss doing that because now everything's digitized and, you know, we have every bit of information in our hands all the time. Um, so we've kind of gotten away from that and I kind of miss that, but I do vividly remember that part of my childhood. Like, wait, actually I did do a lot of reading, but I didn't coin it as reading per se, because I genuinely enjoyed doing it. So it has to do with the enjoyment of that process for me. At what age do you think you started 
reading the newspaper like that. Wait, can you say that one more time? At what age do you think you started reading the newspaper like that? Um, I remember it was, uh, I, I can't remember the age, but I do remember the period and it was in middle school. So between sixth and eighth grade um, is whenever my mom got that newspaper subscription and um, it, uh, because for a while I used to think that I wanted to be a journalist. That was actually one of my, Oh, my, because of your newspaper reading. Yes, for sure. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a sports journalist because I liked the way that mm -hmm. they, they painted pictures um, of how, you know, such and such ran down the court and hit the game winning three. And obviously I didn't mm. see it. I didn't see it, but that imagery, I, and as I would read it, I would picture it in my mind. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I really like got excited about. It made me feel that I was, uh, I was a part of that experience. Now, you know, people may ask today, well, you know, why didn't, why did you get enjoyment out of that? And you could have just flipped on the TV and watched the game and gotten the same amount of enjoyment. But that's just not the case for me because uh, we grew up relatively poor. <laughs> so we didn't have all the channels that everyone else had. Um, so the only way that I could get my, my sports fix is to read about it. And it, because I, I vividly remember the first like big sports thing that I read in the newspaper was about the, I think it was 05, maybe 2006, when the Dallas Mavericks played the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. And I read every day the newspaper would come in. I was like, okay, who won game two? So that means they're up to the zip. Who, who did this? Who did that? And uh, I remember that because the, the Miami Heat were down in the series and then they came back and won it. Oh, wow. Uh, so, and I, I, it's still like, imprinted in my mind forever um and then I, I read a lot about the Williams sisters and tennis tournaments and things like that and then you know I would read other things about like what's going on in the city and things like that things that kids don't actually care about at that age but but I, I would always I would always read I would read that after but I would always read my sports first and uh yeah my, my sister and I had many an arguments <laughs> about who would read the paper first and she would get mad at me I get mad at her I go tattle to my mom you know she took the newspaper from me like what, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh man good times well actually I don't know that we've ever talked about this in no, all of the years of our friendship and what I think is really fascinating is you used a few minutes ago you said you liked the way that the sports journalists would create this imagery of the game. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think about that in juxtaposition to this idea that you struggled with the way that standardized tests would think about reading comprehension, because obviously you understood there was a story being painted, right? This is the tussle of the game or like the thing with the series, right? The Mavericks versus the heat and how they, they came back. So even in sports writing, 
in the newspaper, there's this kind of narrative arc that's printed. Mm-hmm. And that's reading comprehension. And it just makes me think about like when we're talking about education that, you know, how do you teach people something like narrative arc? And it doesn't always have to come through the teaching of fiction, for example. You, why couldn't you use sports stories to teach kids that are into sports about like, oh, this is, this is what a narrative arc is, or this is what imagery is, right? You know, they probably used words like, you know, his sweat was, you know, dripping down his face, or I mean, I don't know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I just think that's interesting. Now, you said you're really into nonfiction. Do you think that comes from your newspaper reading as a young child? For sure. Um, I really, I like reading about things that have actually happened. Um, I like reading historical texts, autobiographies, um, things, things that have, things that allow me to relate to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like what? What are um, examples? So before the book that we're going to discuss on this episode, um, you know, I had just finished reading, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, The Water Dancer. Now, that's still a fiction piece, but everything around mm-hmm. that piece um, is based on true events. Yeah. You know, he talks about Harriet Tubman in the book, uh, as mm-hmm. they call her, Moses. Um, so then, and that, it was exciting for me to read that book because even though it was a fiction piece, yes, my technical definition, um, I still knew something about those real life accounts in which the book was mm-hmm. written about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that book was enjoyable for me to read and just truly understand, um, that, that point in time in history a little bit more. Um, but. Well, that um, book is, that book is sort of historical fiction mixed with magical realism. Yes. <clears throat> right. So it's based on real people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of some, some other things that, uh, well, you, I know that you read a lot of these, like these books, for example, by Tony Dungy or other like sports figures, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about that. Yeah. So I actually, I've read every single Tony Dungy book and I want to, don't, I don't know if I'm accurate on this. I think there are about five or six total. Mm -hmm. Um, I've read every single one. They're all on my bookshelf. (laughs) Um, And because for me, you know, I'm a a coach. And so I like reading those, those types of things, because it just helps gives me insight and kind of informs the way I coach my athletes and things like that. So um, yeah, Tony Dungy is, is one of those one of those coaches um, who I've read, I've read all of his books. I've read some things by Urban Meyer, um, just prompt because at one point I wanted to be a football coach and then I did it for a year and I was like, nope, not going to work. So, mm-hmm. um, so now, now I coach track as you know, but, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've read a lot of, um, just books about coaching leadership style books. Yeah. Now though, the, I'm, the more I read those leadership books that they're, I feel like they're kind of, uh, 
not as realistic sometimes as um i would i would like them to be because it's like they paint this perfect picture about leadership and as we both know leadership is very messy um mm-hmm. so it's not as perfect as these books uh make it out to be but um what's an example do you have an example of i mean i agree with you of course we we talk ad nauseum about leadership and the failures of people in leadership positions and the messiness of leadership in organizations well yeah so yeah i do have an example the tony dungy series right um he lives his life in a very concentrated and strategic and dare i say a restrictive manner um he's heavy in his faith so he all his leadership leadership is faith faith based and uh so you know i would read all his books and i would just be fascinated like wow like this guy is you know awesome he talked about all of his failures as a head coach when he first started off you know he was fired from the buccaneers after you know finally feeling like he got the team over the hump and they were close to winning a super bowl he talked about all these things and how, you know, eventually he went to the Colts. They won the Super Bowl. Um, and I would just read his stuff and be like, this is awesome. And I would try to kind of like lead myself as he would. And then over time, I realized that that was just not possible <laughs> because Tony Dungy is his own person and I am my own person. So I have to do what works best for me. Um, yeah, I don't even remember what your question was, but... <laughs> well, I was just asking if you had... Because you had said that these leadership books, sometimes they don't paint life as it is. Yeah. And, again, that's... I mean, maybe that really was their life. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. I mean, sometimes I think these books are not realistic. Yeah, and it just... um you know, it just, it goes to remind you that everybody has their own life to live and everyone's experiences are different and our worldviews are vastly varied and, and things like that. So it doesn't, I don't know, I just learned that it doesn't really pay much for you to try to live your life as someone else lives theirs. You just have to be authentic and be yourself. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my takeaways. You know, I take, I pull out bits and pieces from those types of books, but then, you know, I have to implement it in my own special way. Mm -hmm. So did at any point your relationship to reading change after this trauma of your young adult or your, your young childhood and young adult life? It, it did. Um, not, not a complete 180. Sure. Um, but it did. And so <clears throat> I remember as I was thinking about this, um, in because I didn't always like math either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always good at math, but I didn't always like it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until the eighth grade I had a math teacher. Um, her name was Miss Boudreaux. And she broke math down in a way that was super simplistic and we still tackled those large concepts but she 
I remember it to this day and I'll never forget, but one class period at the beginning of the school year, she said, okay, for a lot of you, math is not your strong suit. And, and I know that. But what we're going to do in this class is we're going to break it down to a level that is very easy for you to understand. And some of you will be bored because you just want to move on to the next thing. But we have to remember it's about the class as a collective. And I don't want you to be afraid of math. I don't want you to feel as though you're inferior or less than because you don't understand something. You don't understand mm -hmm. it. We're going to go back. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend as much time as possible uh, on a topic that you need. And she was the first teacher in my life up until that point who actually just straight out addressed, hey, I know that this frightens you. I don't want you to feel like that. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful for me because I had never heard a teacher say that before. And every teacher I had had before was just worried about teaching to that standardized test. Right. Like Paul, I can't even put it into words how terrified I was at the end of a school year when we had to take those standardized tests. Uh, trauma. And so she really did change my perception about math. And that's, I feel the same way about this book. Before this book, I was super afraid. Oh, interesting. Of reading. And my 10th grade English teacher, Mr. Edrington, had us read this book. And this book kind of changed my literary life because it was the first book that I read and I didn't feel worried about it. I just read it and I was just super engaged in the plot and the storyline and everything. And yeah, th this book like really did really change everything for me. It really did make me feel, I felt empowered. I understood it. It wasn't, things weren't fuzzy. When we would be in class having conversations about the chapters, I would be one of the few people in the class answering the questions. And after reflecting on that, I'm like, okay, I'm not afraid anymore. And then it was at that point where I stopped kind of overthinking reading and I just did it. And I found it to be more enjoyable after this book, which is why I picked it for the podcast, because this book is really like a turning point in my life. Right. I think it's a fascinating story, actually, about, you know, when you, I know you tussled with this idea of what book to pick. So mm -hmm. it's intriguing to me that you decided to pick a book that you thought shifted your relationship to reading in a particular way. What was it like going back to the book for you now, all these years later? It was refreshing because I like, and still to this day, even after I read it, um, the first time I was like, oh, this is my, the most favorite book I've read like all time. Mm -hmm. um, and even after reading it again for the podcast, I was like, okay, I remember why <laughs> this is my most favorite book of all time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's crazy because I was in 10th grade, what, a decade ago? Mm -hmm. Why do I even remember this book? 
So that just goes to show you how powerful it is. I never forgot. I never forgot this book. Um, so why do you think that you haven't forgotten it? Do you think that it's because of the way that the book was taught? Do you think that it was because of the kind of reaction you had to the book? Or do you think that it was some other reason that this book remains embedded in your brain? It was the first book, and it, just being honest here, it was one of the first books, if not the first book, that I read in schooling from cover to cover. Sure. Because before that, you know, we'd, we'd have assigned books in class, and, you know, you kind of read the first couple chapters. Okay, this book is boring. Skim, 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 skim. Um, you know, just know enough about the book to pass the test. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And this was the first book where I read it in about three days. That was the fastest I had ever read a book, which is funny in this instance, because you know how long it took me to read it, to read it for this podcast. Well, different but, circumstances. Know, diff- different circumstances. We're, we're adults now. <laughs> but um, I read this book in three days, and I would stay up until, you know, I get home from school and track practice and whatnot and I would if I had to just to get through a section of the book that I needed to get through for the next day I would stay up until one in the morning two in the morning mm-hmm. um, having to wake up for five to get ready for school but it was so important for me to get through the book because you know we're gonna get there but it's so good it's such a good book and I just could not put it down and I think that's why I never forgot it because it was the first text that I read thoroughly and enjoyed it. It was the first assigned text because I hated assigned things. And this was the first assigned text that I actually was like, okay, I can do this. It's so good. I read it in two days, as you know. It's mm-hmm. And it's a long book. It's not a short book. It's mm-hmm. plot driven and suspenseful and mysterious and petty and drama filled mm-hmm. and uh-huh. It is so many things that we're going to get into. Um, So I understand that. And I think, you know, many of us have these relationships to books where we feel like this is a book that will live with, you know, will always stay implanted in your brain Mm -hmm. because of whatever, like it, because it became pleasurable or because it became enjoyable or it was easy to do or whatever the case is. So what do you find so good about the book? Like, what did you find so good then? And what do you find so good now? Okay, so I obviously, you know, I read the book now with a way different lens that I did as a 15-year-old. Sure, of course. And when I went into reading it um, this time, I was like, okay, I'm specifically going to try to look for little details and nuances and and uh, plots within the plot. Um, I'm gonna try to read it with my my current lens now and see if I get anything different out of the book. And so I had, I thought I remember much more about the book, but I have forgotten so much of it. So in essence, it's almost like I was reading this book again for the first time. Of course. And uh, I, I just like the, because, <laughs> The ending of the book, I have forgotten how it ended. So mm-hmm. when I when I finally got to the ending, 
it's not one of those deals, you know, you go to watch a movie and it's so obvious how the movie is going to end. Um, I didn't get that feeling from this book. Mm-mm. Um, so I think that's what I enjoyed the most about it was that no matter, and of course, as you're getting to the end of the book, you're like, okay, maybe this is what's going to happen. No, nah, maybe it's that. No, maybe it's this. And then I got to the book and it was, I hadn't even thought about that possible ending. So it just. Oh, me either. The last <laughs> paragraph is so shocking. Yeah. That, and it's perfect, right? The, the way the book ends to me is perfect. Because so, so petty. <laughs> not only petty, but a plot twist right at the end. Mm-hmm. Literally. And then the book is over. And yeah. you just think. Although, when I was going back through the book, I realized that there are these... She's a mastercraft of storytelling is basically what I want to say because the way the book is constructed to me is that she does this wonderful thing where she makes you believe as a reader that like this is the story and this is the way it's going to happen. And then she twists something. And so then you go down these, there are multiple storylines in the book. And by the time you get to the end, you I wouldn't have predicted it, but I realized going back through that there are these, um, it's literally on the first page, Leo. The mm-hmm. ending is on the first page, but I didn't realize it until I went back through. Yes. Um, it's this line. Oh no, it's not on the first page. I'm sorry. It's the first page of chapter two. Okay. But... This is right at the beginning of the book. And it's kind of in the third full paragraph there towards the, the middle of the paragraph. The narrator. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I think I know exactly what you're about to say, but go ahead. Well, read it because you have it highlighted so I can see from your book that you... Okay. I believe there is a theory that men and women emerge finer and stronger after suffering. And that to advance in this or any world, we must endure or deal by fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I was like going back through and I was like reading that and I was like, see, the reason she's such a good writer is because she drops these hints in and they're all through the book where there are these foreshadows. You don't think any of anything of them. And then all of a sudden... You're like, holy crap, she told us exactly what's going to happen on page five. Mm-hmm. But, it's and- just, but it's just a twist of the language, right? Oh, trial by fire. You know, all this kind of psychological stuff. It's like an everyday stuff. thing that we would say, right? It's an everyday thing that we would say, but it's actually, and it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, she sets it up to make it on page five. She sets it up. Clearly the characters in the book are going to go through some sort of ordeals. Mm -hmm. It's very Victorian. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because I experienced the same thing when I was going back through the book, looking for the quotes that I wanted to include. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. I I went back and looked at everything that I highlighted and it made me realize Mm -hmm. that I highlighted those things for a reason. 
And then you start connecting the dots as you go back through the book, like, wait, this connects with this. And she yep. said this. And I was like, wow, talented, talented writer. Her use of imagery and just, it, I, I still, nothing, I read it again and I, I am affirmed in my belief that this is the best book that I've ever read. That's amazing. Um, what about the use of imagery? You've talked about this a lot. When you told me about this book, you said, pay attention to the imagery. Mm -hmm. She's very, very, very uh, detail oriented. She mm -hmm. gives you every little detail about everything. Um, and I'm a little impatient. So that's not always my, that's not always my jam. I'm just like, okay, get to the point, get to the point. Um, because it didn't, I didn't really get into the book until about, you know, page 85 to 90, somewhere in that range where things started to take off. Um, because she spends, she spends so much of the early portion of the book telling you everything that you would possibly need to know. And now that I read the book all the way through, those 80 pages of what we would call fluff makes a lot more sense, but you have to, you know, it's the cliche, you have to, you know, get through the book, uh, just keep reading, keep reading, and it'll all make sense later. But ad admittedly, those first 80 pages of the book for me were a labor. And it kind of made me think to myself as I was reading through it, I was like, huh, am I sure this is my most favorite book <laughs> of all time? Because I had forgotten all that stuff. It's been so long. Um, and she just writes like very artistically i don't even know how to articulate it maybe you can you can help me out here but it's just i don't i don't do you have things highlighted do you what do you remember things that stand out from like the beginning of the book well you had told me that you thought the first 80 pages were like really hard to get through i felt like the book hooked me from the jump mm -hmm. but um, I think the reason for that is when I was in, I just love old Victorian literature. Like I love it so much. Some of my, some of the books that I have always found the most pleasure in are books like by Charles Dickens, by the Brontes, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, all these kind of like 19th century writers. In fact, my my senior thesis in college was about like transatlantic transcendental thinking and the Brontes and the... I love that time period. Yeah, I love it. Now, this book was written in 1938 and I was doing some research about this author and about the reception of this book. And I guess when this book was published, people really criticized it because it was a throwback to these old Victorian novels. We had moved past that in literature by 1938, right? People were not really into this because it reads sort of like, the book reads like a, we would call it like a serial novel. Um, books like by Charles Dickens and Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Brontes and even Jane Austen, all of these people, uh, they weren't published originally as complete books like this. They were published in magazines. 
which is why the which is why the chapters are short, right? So you might like subscribe to a magazine and get a chapter every other week or something. And it was a way for the magazines to sort of like keep their subscriptions up and novelists would write novels like that. That's not how this novel was written, but it reads like that. The chapters mm-hmm. are kind of relatively short, you know, between 10 and 20 pages. Um, they're all a very e- event, like separate event driven. They're all separate event driven. It's a very particular form of writing and she seems to have mastered it. Well, anyway, the book was highly criticized when it first came out because people were like, why are you writing this like throwback Victorian novel? But I loved it from the jump. And, you know, you said, do I have examples of the imagery? I do. And this is like one of the things that I pulled out on my, um, on my little cheat sheet. Um, one thing that I does, one thing that I think she does really well in terms of imagery in the book is that she really uses nature a lot in order, in order to make particular types of points about things. And this is right, you know, on the first page, the narrator is having this kind of dream, right? The, the first line of the book is, you know, I, I dreamed last night that we had gone back to Manderley. And she's talking about what has happened to the property. So there's this great line, nature had come into her own again, and little by little, in her stealthy, insidious way, had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. The woods, always a menace even in the past, had triumphed in the end. On page two, she goes on, she's describing everything in this dreamscape, right? She says, scattered here and again amongst the jungle growth, I would recognize shrubs that had been landmarks in our time, things of culture and of grace, hydrangeas whose blue heads had been famous. No hand checked their progress, and they had gone native now. So what I think she does really well here is that she... She sets up this um, idea. She sets up the tension in the book of the question of triumph by using that word. You know, the woods had triumphed in the end, right? It does give you this kind of tension between human civilization and nature, and does nature win in the end, or does human civilization? But that's also a central tension in the book about. Mm-hmm which character triumphs, right? So again, it's this example of her as a writer picking these words, I feel like very intentionally, right? Just like what we were talking about with fire. She picks these words and she puts them in and that sets up a a particular type of tension. All the nature stuff, the sea, the rhododendrons, the color, the sky, uh, even at these climactic moments, and this is classic Victorian novel shit, um, you know, these, like this moment near the end of the book where, where Favelle is in the study after the 
interrogation had happened and he's accusing Maxim of having murdered Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And the judge comes and he's like, we'll lay out your evidence and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's even nature there, right? Like Maxim opens the windows and it's pouring and there's a thunderstorm and there's cracks of lightning and stuff. I mean, you sort of get this like beautiful visual of him being like just looking out the window mm-hmm. and not. Or like how he would, you know, he'd be looking out the window and it's pouring rain and he's saying something to his, uh, his, his new wife, um, but he's talking to her with his back turned. So like, I imagined all that and I'm like, oh, this is good. <laughs> this is so good. Even like little stuff like that. So the author like hooks you with like, I don't know. It's just amazing. Yeah. The description is really really amazing and it's it's like watching a movie for sure that's a great yeah that's a great way to articulate that it's like watching a movie or like a season of i sort of was thinking about like how am i going to do the intro to this episode and i was going to say something like you know Forget Real Housewives of Atlanta or Love and Hip Hop. You know, <laughs> pick up Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca if you want some petty drama because it is so petty. Which, to that point, right? This book feels like and reads like reality tv it totally reads like reality tv because there are so many things in this book that i read and was like wait a minute i do that <laughs> like i have that quality i have that trait what the hell like, like what it, like what's an example okay i'm glad you asked so <laughs> I, I wrote notes about it right so for instance um on page 128 Mm -hmm. the the main character talks about and it really like begins earlier than that but then it wasn't until 128 that i noticed it as a theme but she talks about um her nervous tick is humming Hmm. whenever she is nervous about something you know Mm -hmm. she'll just hum a little tune to herself so like you know musical therapy Mm -hmm. um on page 140, she talks about every time she gets embarrassed, she pets the dog, Jasper. Um, so I was like, wait, okay. And then, but the author throws that in at multiple places in the book. And so after a while, I realized that it was actually a theme. Um, so it makes you think about like, oh, that's interesting. What do I do? when I get nervous, like, what's my thing? What do I go to? Uh, what do I fall back on to divert attention from myself? How do I handle embarrassment? So it just really makes you think about yourself um, as a person and some of those things that you do. Well, I really want to talk about the narrator who goes unnamed in the book. She just mm-hmm. goes by the, Mrs. New, DeWinter. the new Mrs. DeWinter, right? Yes. What, who do you, how do you conceptualize her as a character? 
Who do you think she is as a person? <clears throat> well, it's, it was noted, you know, that she's very young. Yeah. Um, so I see her as this very youthful, early 20s, um, very imaginative. Mm, and that's imagin a great word. And imaginative because of her youth, because she has to be imaginative because she hasn't experienced a lot of things. Mm. Um, definitely has an inferiority complex. Yes. In, in, um, just in, in limbo with herself, very genuine, but she just doesn't know what she doesn't know. And all throughout the book, she, she, you know, she's very afraid to stand up for herself. Mm -hmm. Um, she's very go with the flow, laissez-faire. Um, yeah, that works. Oh, well, you know, the, the former Mrs. DeWinner used to do this. Oh, that worked. I found myself getting annoyed with her a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, oh my God, can you please just stand up for yourself? Can you, can you please just not bow down to what everybody's telling you to do? Can you please have more confidence? Um, so like if she were my friend in real life, I would probably be trying to empower her all the time and remind her that she's important and she's, you know, she's good enough. I, I, I got really annoyed with her all throughout the book. Well, I shouldn't say all throughout the book because there, there was a point where she did finally stand up for herself and it was subtle, but I was like, hey, that's something. Ooh, it's such a great, it's such a great moment um, when she does do that. But before we get to that, I mean, I think the reason she's a, I did not find myself annoyed with her. Mm -hmm. I felt like the book in some ways is a psychological study of what it would be like to replace a, to be like the replacement wife or the replacement husband in this sort of grand world of, you know, richness and money and all of this kind of stuff. And I just, I, I, you know, I thought that the author did a really good job of sort of like building that tension in because there are just these subtle moments where you get these little lines that you can tell that the person she is when she comes to Manderley is not the person who she really is. You know, she, she'll say something like, you know, this, uh, this, this was the behavior of someone who was neurotic, not someone yeah. who's happy and carefree like I am. Yes. Or there would be this, like, this conversation between her and Frank where she says all this stuff about, oh, I feel like I'm not smart enough, I'm not intelligent enough, I'm not witty enough, I'm not beautiful enough, all this kind of stuff. And Frank says something like, you'd be surprised how far humility, kindness, 
and you know, like he uses these words to describe her. So you you get this picture of her as actually like somebody who's kind, gentle, loving, all these beautiful characteristics that we might think of as a person, but she's constantly comparing herself to Rebecca. Yes. So real, right? So real. Mm-hmm. It it even happens in our it, it, it happens in our day to day lives. Even mm-hmm. if it even if it's not even if it's not um, like a relationship like this was in the book. Even if it's like a friendship, right? Oh, I wish that I could be more like this person because you know this person that I want to be a friend with really likes that characteristic in a person. And I wish I could be more like that. So I could be closer to that person or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. we do these types of things. Even in our work lives, I think we compare ourselves all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. I wish I could be like that beloved leader or that beloved person or whatever the case is. I don't know. I thought it was really well done how she did that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I wrote, okay, so to, to kind of continue with that a little bit, I wrote a note, um, as I was at the early stages of the book, um, I also pointed out the fact that I thought that she's a dreamer. And what I mean by that is, um, I wrote down that she reminds me of myself actually. Um, because on page 62, um, she has these big dreams and whenever it actually came to her, it was overwhelming. And now she had to live up to the expectations that came with those dreams. So when she was younger, when she was a little girl, she had this postcard. And oh, yeah. on the most part was Manderley because Manderley is this big, grandiose, um, you know, ev- everybody wanted to know more about Manderley because Manderley was the thing. And as a little girl, she had dreamed of being a part of that life. Yeah. Um, and years later, she marries the heir <laughs> of Manderley and she's his wife and now that is her home. And she's like, oh wait, I know I said I wanted this, <laughs> but, but it's so overwhelming. So that's why I wrote that, like she, she's a dreamer and she dreams big. She doesn't just, you know, it's not this little, <clears throat> I, I want this job and make X amount of dollars. No, like I want, she dreamed for a whole lifestyle and she got that lifestyle. And when she did get it, she realized how overwhelming it was. Um, yeah, in fact, there's this, in fact, there's this great little scene when after they get married, they go on their honeymoon, they're driving back to Manderley. She's never been there in like physical person. And they're driving through this little country town and they see these people on the side of the road. And she has one of these sort of like dreamscape things where she goes, oh, I started to imagine what it might be like if me and Maxim just had a little cottage on the side of the road and we farmed and we 
you know, whatever. I, I fixed his stockings in the evening. We made a little supper. We had this kind of thing. She goes on these kind of imaginative, yeah, I called them like the dreamscapes of the book. And because she does it all the time. Like all that, the time. That's how she lives her life. I feel like she like lived her life in a completely different universe. And she was only in her present life when she absolutely had to be. Hmm. That's, in, that's interesting. See, I felt like what, I don't know, I don't know if I felt like she was living her life in a dreamscape or if she was living her life in a sort of torpid reality. Um, Cause she has this, here's why I say that. She has this obsession with Rebecca, mm-hmm. the, the first wife. And that is part of what creates all this suspense and drama in the book is that she's built up this kind of narrative structure around Rebecca and so has everybody else, right? And she feels like she can't dare ask about about who this person was. Um, Until she finally starts asking questions, like on page 123, she, she wouldn't even mention the name Rebecca, right? After she moved to Manderley and stuff. And on page 123, she finally says her name. I think she's talking with Frank. She says, I could not believe that I had said the name at last. I waited, wondering what would happen. I had said the name. I had said the word Rebecca aloud. It was a tremendous relief. It was as though I had taken a purge and rid myself of an intolerable pain. Rebecca, I had said it aloud. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca is like this force in the book. But we come to find out she's not... At all. <laughs> that. <laughs> no, what is she? A terrible person. <laughs> but... A terrible person. Mm-hmm. So she just put herself through all of that strife and agony the whole book only to come to find out that this person that she wanted to be so bad, even though she knew nothing about her really, um, turned out to be somebody who's not even remotely close to who she is. Um, Which kind of, that's why I said earlier, um, she kind of annoyed me a little Mm. bit as a character, because as I'm reading, I'm like, she she always like drifts off into another reality and imagines what this would be like. And that's masterful on the, on the um, author's part to paint those pictures because I thought the author did a great job with that too. Like, okay, let me pull you out of here for a second and let me, the author really allowed you to get inside the narrator's brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I thought that was, was excellent, but I got annoyed with the main character a lot because I'm just like, okay, you're overthinking it. It's not that deep. <laughs> you're, you're putting yourself through all of this, all of this pain for no reason. It's not that deep. Oh, well, maybe, you know, 
this is what Ma this is what I think Maxim is thinking. She would say that often in the book. This is what I imagine uh, Maxim is thinking about me without having asked him, of course. Um, and you know, she would go on these these long rants in her mind about what she thought people thought of her. And I'm just like, come on, it's not that serious. <laughs> like, can, can we just not, please? Uh, I thought it was great because. Because again, I, I tried to imagine what it would be like to come into a household where another person had been this beloved figure. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't you think that you would have a similar type of psychological malaise about, or like a torpor, like a psychological torpor about Oh, am I living up to the expectations? How do I do this? And of course, there's also a class thing here that has to be talked about because she clearly comes from not an upper class. Yes. This is another thing in the book. Tension all throughout the book about the class issue. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it gets, again, I think that she does, the, the author, you know it's there, because she writes about it in a particular way, but it's not heavy handed. She talks about these little things related to the class issues, like the narrator will say, oh, I, I started to get nervous and I started to bite my nails, right? Or she talks about like her undergarments being not these like beautiful undergarments, but these kind of like, <laughs> you know, we would call them like, I don't know, I'm not wearing Banana Republic, I'm wearing Hanes. You know, right. it's like, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, or whatever. I'm not wearing Versace. Right. I'm wearing like... Fruit of the Loom. <laughs> yeah, Fruit of the Loom, or, you know, Up and Up. Um, <laughs> you know, like Target, Up and Up. Um, right. All this kind of stuff. But I guess my question is, after she finds out Rebecca is a terrible person and after she finds out that Maxim murdered Rebecca, does she herself as the, as the main character become a terrible person? I believe Yeah. Why? Because, you know, once again, you know, you read these things and you kind of put yourself in those scenarios. And if I were in her shoes, I'm like, you're, you're a murderer. <laughs> I'm married to you. I now know that you are responsible for your first wife's death. Bye. <laughs> like, I'm not. You're gonna. You you gonna get mad and kill me one day. You know what I'm saying? So mm. I I didn't I didn't agree with how she chose to go about that. Um, and because I actually did think that one thing that was mentioned early on in the book would be a theme that reemerged, and it did reemerge, but just in passing, not. To, to use your verbiage from earlier, it wasn't heavy handed. Mm -hmm. um, you, you remember 
when she met Maxim's sister, Beatrice, for the first time. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, everyone was out on the lawn and uh, her and Beatrice broke off from everyone else and they had their own little private conversation. And Beatrice was just kind of dropping little nuggets in there about Rebecca and, um, and Maxim. She went into great detail about her brother and, you know, gave the main character some historical context. And she said that, you know, he would lose his temper, you know, maybe once or twice a year. And because he he got upset so infrequently, when he did get upset, it was bad. And so I kind of wanted that as a reader. I wanted that to come up a little bit more in the book. And I wonder why the author didn't make it as so to where that was a, a, a deeper theme. Hmm. Because just putting myself in that situation, you just said, you just confessed to me that you murdered your wife. And so that's why I, I say, like, no, I'm not going to be a part of this because I would have connected those dots is what I'm trying to get at. Like, wait, you just, you just told me you murdered your first wife. Your sister told me that you lose your temper. And when you lose it, you really lose it. Mm-hmm. Um. Nah, I gotta go. <laughs> this isn't gonna work. Mm-mm. So why does she stay? Youth, I think. She doesn't. Hmm. She she spent the whole book, and I don't know if it's an appropriate flow in the conversation. I can't. It doesn't it matter. Yeah, just bring it up. <laughs> um, because let me. I think it was in one of the quotes that I had sent you. Okay, good. Give me one second. Um, Your second quote? Yes. Yeah. You want, would you like me to read it? Yes, please. Okay. I love you more than anything in the world. There has never been anyone but you. You are my father and my brother and my son. All those things. And I thought that that was deep because man you, she her whole life revolves around this man so the fact that he murdered his first wife i just found that like crazy that that was not even enough to shift her perception of him i actually felt like she started loving him more which is totally i think creepy but <laughs> But she, I feel like, because if you remember before all of that, you know, once again, she's in her brain all the time. She's in her own head. And she's like, I just want to know what he's thinking. I just want to be older. That was another theme in the book. She was so insecure about how young she was. Um, And other people didn't do much to help her feel any differently. But um, I want to know what's going on. And for her, that was like the biggest, deepest, darkest secret for her. And she interpreted that as love because she had all these questions about, does he love me? Mm-hmm. And the fact that he told her something of that magnitude, she was like, wow, he actually does. He actually does love me. But then as the reader, I'm like, right, uh, he, he might love you, but he's also a murderer. <laughs> we, can't, we can't forget that part. So I just, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Why do you think she 
stayed with him. Well, I think that there's like two things here, right? And I have a really complicated relationship to the narrator myself because I think all the way through like the first really two thirds of the book, I felt this kind of deep empathy for the narrator because I felt like what she was doing, not just what she was doing to herself, but what the whole experience was doing to her was like, she was stuck in this psychological internalized monologue about not being good enough for Maxim, not having what he needs, feeling socially inept. I mean, all of that class issue stuff that comes up, right? Oh, I spilled the sherry at lunch and I broke the Cupid statue and I don't know how to write a letter and my penmanship sucks and like all this kind of stuff that comes up. And so you feel like this empathy and you also feel this, this haunting is the only word I could think of, of this Rebecca character and how everyone's like, Oh, she was so beautiful. She was so worldly. She gave the best party. She knew how to boat, you know, just this like, you know, woman Mm -hmm. that, supposedly Maxim had loved. So I felt such empathy for her in that situation. And I guess like you at times, I was like, girl, he married you. Like, take control of the house, right? Like, especially with Mrs. Danvers. And we'll oh, talk yeah, about can that we in, talk about that? <laughs> yeah, we're going to, I mean, we're going to talk about that in a second. Okay. But um, but then Maxim you know, confesses to her that he murdered Rebecca. And then they find the boat and they find her body and all the stuff, you know, starts to unwind. And she stays with him. And I, this is why I say I have a conflicted relationship, Leo, because on one level, I could understand that choice by her. Like, she, I do think that they loved each other. Like, I think that Maxim actually loved her and she actually loved him and they had this life. And so she made these choices in order to protect that which she had always imagined in her head, but that had never come to fruition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I understood it from one level. But then on the other hand, I'm just like you. I felt like, wait a minute. She becomes just as vindictive, just as terrible, doing really horrible things as Rebecca had done in a different way, but they, they became, and so then I started thinking about like, okay, is this another way that like the author is bringing in, for example, class issues? Is she trying to say like money always corrupts you money always 
will screw with your psychology. It'll turn you from a good person to a bad person or, you know, whatever the case is. So I don't know. I just, I didn't feel by the end of the novel that I disliked the narrator for the choices she made, Mm -hmm. which is really complicated because she helped her, she helped her husband get away with murder. Literally. I mean, you know, oh, again, reality, you know, like these dramas that we watch. Mm-hmm. This book, oh, this just struck me. This book could be like the 1938 version of the TV show, How to Get Away with Murder. For sure. For sure. And, and, and to your point, it, it wasn't even like it, she was blatant. She wasn't blatantly doing anything. It was just very subtle. But, you know, her, you know, her moral landscape was shifted because of love um her not saying anything at all uh was is questionable because of love so and because of class and because she wants the lifestyle Mm -hmm. and she wants to be with maxim and she wants the companionship and she wants happy valley and the walks and the, the dogs and all the stuff right that's why i think the book is so great and it goes like now we can shift to mrs danvers because (laughs) a whole not that that to me is a whole nother storyline within the storyline and it raises the question again of you said do you feel don't tell me you feel sorry for mrs danvers Mm -hmm. right yeah you said don't mrs danvers is a terrible character she's terrible But what the book does is it makes you question these people's motives. And I don't know that I left the book. I was thinking about this again last night. Is Mrs. Danvers actually a terrible character? And if I have to be honest with you, when I had said that to you, like, no, Ms. Ms. Danvers is, is because I think I asked you like, oh, uh, what do you think about her? And you were like, I don't know. I haven't made my mind up yet. And I was like, she's a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I said some other things that are not, you know, podcast worthy. But, right. <laughs> but, you know, I said that she, I think she's a terrible person. But I honestly probably have to agree with you. Um, I have to agree with you on that point. Because I think that, to use a word from earlier, Ms. Danvers is simply human. Because I can think of many a situation um, where I have been in Ms. Danvers' shoes and, you know, I had someone who I was really close to and that person left to go do something else. And then, you know, someone else came in and took that and took that person's spot. Someone I was so just had a, a strong, deep relationship with. And then somebody else came in and took their spot. And I'm like, no, you're, no, we're, we're not going to do this because you're not that person. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Like, I probably would have reacted the same way, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I don't think I, go ahead. No, I, I don't think I would have done everything <laughs> that Ms. Davers did because some of that stuff she did was, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure we're about to talk about the uh, the dress at the ball. Now that is some that's on some other level. I don't think I would have done that, but I probably would have been standoffish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, again, Mrs. Danvers has this loyalty to Rebecca, right? And she raised Rebecca from a child. This is like this, you know, housemaid thing, whatever. I agree. You know, you, you have these scenes in the book where Mrs. Danvers is a total terrible person. Mm-hmm. The costume ball is the prime example. Like when, when that thing with the costume ball happened, I was like, oh. Let me, let, okay, <clears throat> just like really quick. Let me tell you something about those pages. Because mm-hmm. I wrote this down in like all caps because I didn't want to not say it. Mm-hmm. Pages 213 to, and 214. Those two pages and the last page, of course, because the last page like shook me. But... <laughs> Pages 213 and 214 were the most powerful pages in the book for me Mm. because that's when the main character is explaining that, you know, uh, she went down to the, went down to announce herself to everybody. She was so excited about the dress um, and Miss Danvers set her up. And so Maxim got upset. Everybody's looking at her crazy, like, why are you wearing the dress? And that's the same dress Rebecca wore um, last year. And now Rebecca's not with us. So what, are you trying to be funny? Are you trying to be disrespectful? And just like completely crushed the main character's psyche. And so those two pages in the book, the author's description of that, I physically felt like I was the main character in that moment. My heart started beating fast. I started sweating and I'm just sitting in my, in my apartment, my AC's on, everything's good. I'm drinking my water. And I felt, I felt it as a reader. Mm-hmm. That's why I love this book so much because I don't really, it's rare that that happens to me through a text. Mm-hmm. The, those, those two pages were the most powerful pages in the book for me. Cause I felt mm. like I was living that experience. Yeah. Well, you have this. So there's another scene for me that I thought, these are the pages that I keep just thinking about. And this goes to Mrs. Danvers. Um, for me, it's, it's a little bit before that around page 172. Uh, I actually thought that this, chapter this is chapter 14 i wrote at the the top of the chapter that this is probably one of the most important chapters of the book for a particular reason uh the quote so mrs danvers is showing the narrator the new mrs de winter the west wing which is where Rebecca and Maxim used to live. And Mrs. Danvers has kept the bedroom in the exact same order as when Rebecca was alive. It's very great expectations, by the way. If you ever read Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, this whole chapter is great expectations. It's like, you know, Mrs. Havisham 
keeping her house exactly in the same state as the day that she was supposed to marry her husband, including wearing the wedding dress and stuff. So it's this kind of creepy crap that happens in these Victorian novels. Mm -hmm. But, um, but Mrs. Danvers is talking to the narrator on page 172. And she says, she's talking about Rebecca being this kind of like presence in the house, right? She says, it's not only in this room, it's in many rooms in the house, in the morning room, in the hall, even in the little flower room. I feel her everywhere. You do too, don't you? Do you think she can see us talking to one another now? Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Now, this is why I said, is Mrs. Danvers a bad character? Is she a terrible person? That's what the whole book, that, that to me is the question of the whole book for every character. Are these people good or are they bad? There's, there's these moral questions in the book. Because when, I, when you asked me the other day about how do I feel about Mrs. Danvers, I had just read that section of the book. And the reason I said I wasn't sure was because I could empathize with her and the pain that she felt about having lost this woman that she had cared for since she was a young child and how deeply traumatic it must be to then have another woman come in and take that person's place. I could empathize with that. Mm -hmm. Then she does all the terrible, nasty stuff that she does. And then by the end of the book, when you realize what her and Flavelle do on the last page. <laughs> That's, and then it just comes back full circle. It comes back full circle. <laughs> and you go, wait, is that really the right thing to have done? So it's just all of the characters, Leo, are like that. The, the book is so great because every single character in the book, every single one, you make it she paints them in this both and way as opposed to this either or way. And I think, and we'll, we'll I'm, I know we're gonna get there, but I wanna talk about that too, the decision to do what they did to the house because mm -hmm. that's why the ending of the book is so like, there should be a sequel because I wanna know why you chose to do that, especially since you acted a whole completely different way in the interrogation room. Um, cause that, that whole scene in itself was just something else too. Like, oh, she was acting totally normal. And then at the end of the book, you decided to, to do that to the house. And so I'm just like, was it all for show? But then even that's confusing is be and because like, if you hated the main character and Maxim so much, then don't you think in the interrogation, she would have lied. She would have said, said something to get that. So I don't know. It's just so confusing. And so beautiful well, at the same time. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. Well, because this is human psychology. This is people's motives, what drives them, all of the, you know, the stuff. And like, what would you do mm -hmm. in the heat of the moment? I mean, I think that Mrs. Danvers, honestly, when she finds out during that last night that before they go off to London and stuff to, mm -hmm. to try to find the doctor, okay, I think that she has this kind of traumatic experience of realizing simultaneously 
that both uh, Maxim had murdered Rebecca. I don't think she actually knew that until that moment near the end of the book where they're standing in that like little library room or whatever and the judge is there. So I think Mrs. Danvers realizes that, oh, Rebecca was actually murdered. She didn't just drown mm -hmm. when she went out on the boat. And then also realizes that Rebecca was actually sick. She didn't know. She didn't know that Rebecca, like, so Rebecca had kept a secret from her. Yes. And that's so, what, yeah. so she felt, so there's this, there's this thing about like betrayal. Because she thought she knew everything about Rebecca. Right. Mm -hmm. So then when you start to think about why does she burn the house down at the end of the book, you start to think, right, which seems crazy, but on another level, you think, oh my God, did she burn the house down because she's trying to get back at Maxim? Did she burn the house down because she's trying to get back at Rebecca? Is she mm -hmm. trying to get back at the new Mrs. DeWinter? Is she just in this fit of rage about mm -hmm. what has happened? Mm-hmm. And you know how when you're in a fit of rage, you just do stuff sometimes that, so, you know, she's probably like, let me burn this down, <laughs> right. you know, right. like, let me burn it down. Mm -hmm. So I left the book feeling like so conflicted about my relationship to her because I was like, I get it, girl. Like, I get it. And listen, the main character has nervous tics. She pets dogs. Miss Danvers burns houses down. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Miss <laughs> Danvers sets you up to wear the wrong dress. Miss <laughs> Danvers purposely chooses this food that you hate because that's the way that the old Mrs. DeWinter would have done it, right? Uh -huh. Or all this, like, I mean, all these petty things that she does in the book, like, oh, mm. just because yeah. I really... Like the, the breaking of the, of the piece of China, that was so petty. She knew that the main character broke it. <laughs> did did and you know i really loved it like speaking about the the point when the the narrator finally sort of like gets over this and takes control but this gets into you know is the narrator being petty but you know on page 290 is this line where you feel like the narrator is starting to take control over Mrs. Danvers. It's such a great line. I put a little, I highlighted it in my book and I, if you can see, I put an exclamation point by it. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the moment where I was like, finally. Yeah, there's really, there's two moments. The first one comes when, the first one comes on page um, 242. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrator goes up to Mrs. Danvers. This is after the costume ball debacle, you know, <laughs> and she's, and she goes, I went up to her, shook her by the arm. You made me wear that dress last night. I said, I should never have thought of it, but for you, you did it because you wanted to hurt Mr. DeWinter. You wanted to make him suffer. Hasn't he suffered enough without your playing that vile, hideous joke upon him? So she even turns it into this thing that, it's not me you hurt, you're hurting Mr. DeWinter. Which is so interesting. I just want to uh, talk about that like real brief, but when I read that, I, once again, I put myself in, in these situations. I'm like, why did you choose to say that she wanted to hurt him? 
Because I thought it was more so about hurting her, not about Mr. DeWinter, because I don't even think Mrs. Danvers respected him enough to even care about him. No, she didn't care about him at all. So when she, when she chose to say, you did it because you wanted to hurt Mr. DeWinter, it was one of those points in the book where I got annoyed with her because I'm like, no, stand up for yourself. <laughs> don't, don't try to stand up for other people. Stand up for yourself. Yeah, it's... And then, and then the second moment is on page 290, and I'd love if you would mm-hmm. read it because it's so... Oh, it's, okay. so, it's so petty. Yes. Um, okay, so I, I, started, I started mine right here. Um, <clears throat> Don't tell me you can't think of anything to give us, Mrs. Danvers, I said. You must have menus for all occasions in your room. That was petty. <laughs> I'm not used to having messages sent to me by Robert, she said. If Mrs. DeWinner wanted anything changed, she would ring me personally on the house telephone. Main character. I'm afraid it does not concern me very much what Mrs. DeWinter used to do, I said. I am Mrs. DeWinter now, you know? And if I choose to send a message by Robert, I shall do so. Boy. <laughs> I did this thing, right? You know how I, I was like, yes, uh-huh. yes. I was so excited, you know, I, because this line is so perfect. I'm afraid it does not concern me very much. <laughs> what Mrs. DeWinter used to do. I'm Mrs. DeWinter now. I thought, ooh, because you can imagine the tension in the room, right? Like, I I pictured them, I pictured her even not even looking at Mrs. Danvers. I pictured her, like, doing some other thing, right? Like, sitting at the writing desk, you know, she's writing, it doesn't much bother me that that's what the old Mrs. DeWinter used to do. You know what I'm saying? Well, didn't she, I think a little bit later, she kind of, like, mentions that the the author kind of mentions that in passing or maybe it was another circumstance because she had like a couple um she had about one or two precursor moments to that moment and that was the big moment um but i i think in one of those in one of those instances she was actually like no 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 it was this moment because then the author goes on and talks about how she uh she was arranging roses in the vases in the Oh yeah. The right at the writing desk or in that room or whatever. And she and she talks about, yeah. I wasn't really I wasn't give, she didn't give her eye contact because it still made her uncomfortable to do so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to your point, she was actually doing something else and not even giving her eye contact, which is so rude. <laughs> but so ah, <laughs> uh, well. Did we, when you read your quote here a minute ago about I love you more than anything in the world, there's never been anyone but you, did we finish talking about why that, why you pulled that quote out? Or did we sort of like meander about? I'm trying to. Uh, I don't think we talked about it explicitly. I think it was in relation to something else, but yeah that that quote stood out to me because um she put all as the saying goes all of her eggs in one basket Mm. um because i don't maybe i need your clarification on this i don't remember too much um about the the beginning because once again i just want to get through it but did she 
at any point mention that she didn't have family, really? Yeah, her, okay, so this is the very little bit that we know about the narrator's family is that she clearly came from a poor background, mm -hmm. but her father died when she was very young and then her mother couldn't handle the loss of her father and died shortly thereafter. Her father died of pneumonia and it's just, it's literally one paragraph in the book. It's okay. when she first, it's when she first meets Max de Winter and they're at that villa in Monte Carlo. Okay. And remember that the woman that she was kind of a companion with Van Hopper was, yeah, Van Hopper, Mrs. Van Hopper was sick in bed with the flu or something. Mm -hmm. And so she had gone down to lunch and Max had invited her. And for some reason she told her whole life story to this man. And it was in that paragraph, right? She, she says something like, I, I had a beloved father. He says, tell me more about him. Mm -hmm. And all you hear is, well, he died from pneumonia. I was very heartbroken. My mother died. I became an orphan. So, See, that's crazy because I didn't even remember that. So, yeah. So it, it was just in passing. She was just talking to him. Okay. Well, and that's also the one place we've talked a little bit about how this character is nameless in the book, right? Mm -hmm. And there's just this line there in that scene where Max says, well, you have a very lovely and intriguing name or something to that effect, right? And she says, well, I had a lovely and intriguing father. Mm -hmm. And then he and then Max says, well, tell me about him. And that's the point where it gets dropped in. And so the whole thing about the narrator remaining nameless is like another interesting trope in the book. We mm -hmm. never know anything about the narrator. We don't know anything besides that one paragraph of her background, except that she was clearly poor, not from the upper class. Mm -hmm. We just don't know anything about her, which, which is, is why also... it's... Which is also why I think it was easy for me to allow myself to get annoyed with her. Because sure. had I had more context about her, then I wouldn't have, you know, been like, oh my God, you're, you're crazy. Like, just chill out. Because um, we, we don't know anything about her but that one paragraph in the whole book. But that just speaks to the author because even, I rarely have, I've rarely read a book where I don't know anything about the main character. That's so crazy to me. And it's part of what I think is like the mystery and suspense of the novel is that the, the, the author, I think, purposely does that so that by the time you get to the end of the novel, you have to ask yourself as a reader these hard questions. Who is the narrator? <laughs> right, still. Right? Like you still, days after, I'm like, is she a good person? Is she a bad person? Is she vindictive? Is she jealous? Is she fun? Is she petty? Is she, mm -hmm. who is she? Mm -hmm. I don't know who she is. And that is what is masterful about the storytelling because you, can, you could make an argument either way. Yep. And it would work perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. It's so good. <laughs> so, it's so good. So, so good. Um, we kind of like talked over that point, but I, I just really, I pulled out that point because <clears throat> once again, real life, right? Um, it, it goes to show you that sometimes, especially people 
who have been through, you know, the things that the the narrator had gone through in her early life, it just goes to show you that when someone goes through um, a tumultuous experience like that, when they take that experience into a romantic relationship, you know, their partner becomes the father, the mother, the brother, the sister becomes their everything because they have nothing else. And I think that that just plays a huge part in how the the main character decides to handle all the events around Maxim admitting to her that he killed his wife because if she, yeah, it's easy for me to sit here and say, oh, you should have left him. If she would have left him, where would she have gone? Well, there's that, but there's also the thing of like that line that you pulled out makes it seem like she becomes infatuated with him. Yeah. Right? So like, it. so again, to the psychological case study of what, to what extent will you do something for somebody when you become so infatuated with them that they become everything, right? You're my father, my brother, my lover, you are the son, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like my whole world revolves around you and then you start to do things that may or may not be in character of who you are as a person. And that's, again, it's a great quote because it leads to that question, that tension of like, well, who is the narrator? Because that, that just makes me think about the parts in the book that I was like, really? But um, she talks about all the time how when Maxim, you know, they had, throughout the book, they had several conversations in the library. And he'd go and sit in his, in his chair and she would just go kneel next to him by his knees and just put her head on his lap. Um, and, he would, and he would pet her. And at one point, the first time he did it, she complains about it because she was like, I wish he wouldn't pet me like I'm Jasper, like I'm the dog. But then she keeps doing it. So <laughs> every time they have a serious conversation, she keeps going, you know, kneel to him pretty much. And I was reading those, those parts of the books and I'm like, okay be strong. <laughs> like, don't go bow down to this man. Like, and she kept doing it, um, even after complaining about it. So I was like, yeah, you really love this man. Well, she was seeking his affection. Mm-hmm. And she felt, and that's the part of the book where she still feels like he loves Rebecca. He loved Rebecca. She's infatuated with Rebecca and with the memory of Rebecca, and she's written this narrative, right? So she's like, oh, if I just go kneel, yeah, there's that, again, who is the narrator? The, the author does a great job of, like you said, she goes at one point and she says, I wish you would stop t- treating me like a child and start treating me like an adult. And then on the next page, I decided to go put my head on his knee and, and, <laughs> and, and I was like a dog. She actually compares herself to the dog. I just want it to be like a dog, rest in his lap and be his little lap dog type of thing, right? And so it's like this, you know, but like, yeah, but when you're reading it, it doesn't feel like that. But when you think about it in the back end, you're like, wait a minute, who are you? (laughs) Like, what you up to? What's your deal? She's so weird. So, so, so weird. So contradictory, but so human. Oh, so human. That's exactly <laughs> the point. So human. 
so human. Um, so that I, I, I could go on to another quote. Um, okay, hold the, while you find it, hold it. I'm going to okay. pause for one second. Okay, what's your what what's the next quote? Okay, so it was the <clears throat> the fourth one I had sent. Uh-huh. Um on page 299. Uh-huh. Um and the, Maxim is talking to the narrator and he says um and I want to say yes, so this was this was right after um he had finally confessed to her that he killed Rebecca and he says it's gone forever. That funny young lost look that I loved. It won't come back again. I killed that too when I told you about Rebecca. It's gone in 24 hours. You are so much older. Mm. And I wrote at the end of that chapter, this is the classic example of be careful what you ask for. And I bring that up because you just mentioned how she was constantly in her, in her mind and she verbalized it to him a few times as well. Um, you know, stop treating me like a child. Stop treating me like I'm so young. And she wanted to be you know, more adult so badly. And then it, it came quick. <laughs> like, it slapped her in the face. So I wrote that, be careful what you ask for. Um, because he just dropped the bomb on her and she really did have to grow up so quickly. Well, and it follows, there's like other lines in the book actually that follow that quote um, that lead up to it. And again, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about how the author is so great at dropping these hints that then when you go back through, you see they all lead up to these points because way back when they were in Monte Carlo, when they had first met, uh, he, Max had asked something about like, do you think 42 is too old or whatever? And she's 21, right? So they've got like this 21 year difference in their age, right? Um, and he does drop a comment about something like it's a shame you'll have to grow up or mm. something like that and and then your quote that you just read about this yeah be careful what you wish for and again you have to sort of think about okay is the care is the narrator is she young and naive or is she old and vindictive mm. Is she young and innocent or is she old and um, jealous and all this other kind of stuff? Or does youth come with jealousy and then age come with wisdom mm -hmm. of all these things that you have to do in order to survive? I mean, it's, it's really, it's really a character study and it goes to that kind of ties to one of the other quotes that I pulled out about, this obsession that the narrator has about the past, the present, and the future. This is my first quote. I'm just going to talk a little bit about how, you know, moments function in the book. The narrator is talking to Max. Uh, this is still way back at the beginning of their relationship when they're in Monte Carlo, and she's, I think they're driving she says, if only there could be an invention that bottled up memory like scent, and it never faded, and it never got stale. And then when one wanted it, the bottle could be uncorked, and it would be like living the moment all over again. 
And Max says a few pages later, I'm afraid I think rather differently from you. All memories are bitter and I prefer to ignore them. Something happened a year ago that altered my whole life and I want to forget every phase of my existence up to that time. Those days are finished. They are blotted out. I must begin living all over again. Um, so, yeah, you wonder about this, this theme in the book around getting older, coming into an understanding of the world. Like the quote that you pulled out is really a quote for me about you know, at what moment in your life do you sort of like grow up? Mm, mm-hmm. Or do you become old? And for Max, it's all, it all revolves around this murder of his ex-wife and, you know, all of that. For, her, for the narrator, it might be learning to come to this thing, you know, this realization of this is what you have to do is this what love is? Is love murder? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is love vindictiveness or are we really in love? I mean, I don't know. There's all these questions. But the, but the quote that I pulled out was really about, I thought that, you know, you said that she's like, the narrator's kind of this imaginative person. But she's also this person who seems to want to like live in these fictitious worlds. She either wants to, it goes back to what you said about how she's imaginative or the dreamscape stuff that we talked about. She either wants to live in the past, bottle up these memories and be able to uncork them, or she wants to live in some future, but she doesn't necessarily always want to live in the present. Mm -hmm. Because I think every time she has a side thought, that's her way of escaping the present. Yes. And it's either going to the past or going to some uh, imaginative creation in her mind about what this thing would actually be like. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, and this goes to, you know, your, this goes to another quote in a kind of indirect way that you pulled about even leading up to this costume ball. Mm-hmm. She has this imagination of what this costume ball is going to be like right? For me, I was like, this is going to be a dreadful experience. I just knew (laughs) as I was reading up to it, I was like, something is going to happen. But also, I just feel like those types of things must be dreadful events. I, I, on on that note, though, you know, uh, that was one of the points in the book where I removed myself. I, I, uh, I removed myself from her. And then I put myself in the crowd at the bottom of the staircase. And so when I was reading all that, I was like, I would have been looking at her like she was crazy too, because it was just so childish. It was so like, she, she got the drummer to announce her. And I'm like, oh, you, this is about to be bad. <laughs> like, I would have looked at her like, you crazy. And then they get into this, they don't even get into this fight. There's just this tension around her costume. And this is one of the quotes that you pulled out about, I think this is the scene, right? In your quote, page two, page two twenty-five. Um, maybe I'm not one hundred percent sure. Um, do you want me to read it, or are you gonna read it? Yeah, yeah, read it. Um, <clears throat> we were like two performers in a play, but we were divided. 
we were not acting with one another. We had to endure it alone. We had to put up this show, this miserable sham performance for the sake of all these people I did not know and did not want to see again. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to say that was right after um, she went up and she changed and she came back down. Right. And uh, her and Maxim were together the whole night, but they never he never looked at her. He never spoke to her, but they still had to pretend like everything was fine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You have any thoughts about that or? Well, I was was just thinking about why do I hear all this feedback all of a sudden? Okay, I'm going to start over there. I was just thinking about how the narrator lives in these imagination scapes of what something is going to be like. And it turns out that in fact, it is all a performance, right? And that's why I said your quote sort of matches to that a little bit, because even though the moment is about this tension around the fact that the narrator made this faux pas, thanks to Mrs. Danvers about wearing the dress that Rebecca had worn at the last ball that where she was alive. And there's all this tension, this thing in your quote about, you know, we had to endure it. We had to put up this show, a sham performance for the sake of all these people. I mean, one thing you really know about Maxim is that he does not like any of this crap that they have to do as rich people. Right. He's not here for like the balls, the entertainment. He doesn't like any of that crap. Mm -hmm. And so it really is a performance. But modernize that. It's a performance for the narrator in in a way that like she imagines it to be like this glamorous thing, but it ends up being this not glamorous thing. How do you modernize it? Uh, When I when I read that, um, when I read that quote, which is, that's part of the reason why I picked it out, because I thought it was profound, but um, it made me think of social media. Oh, sure, of course. It made me think of social media and how we use it um, to pretty much put on performances for people. Um, because people rarely, you know, post the not so good things that are going on in their lives. They post all the the glamorous things that they're doing. Oh, I just took a flight to Miami. I just got this new job, this pay raise. I did a look at my dog. Um, I did, you know, this good thing. And behind closed doors, it's not as glamorous as we make it out to be. Um, so I just thought that that was, that, that spoke to today. Well, I think it speaks to so much of our experience on the planet. I mean, mm-hmm. I think of like, well, maybe people will hear this and they'll think that I'm a terrible person, but it's okay. Um, It makes me think of like when we're invited to these sort of uh, official events Mm -hmm. that you know are total shams, right? That they're they're, they're not the thing. It's like, oh, you go to the official university party, right? Oh, the president of the university is happy to invite you to their home or whatever. 
And it always feels like this kind of sham. This person doesn't want to be doing this, right? And it's not fun. It's, mm -hmm. it's rarely, if ever, fun. So the real, it's performative. The real fun is when you go out after that sham event with the people you actually care about and you, you know, stay up until two o'clock in the morning doing whatever, 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 you know, like mm -hmm. that's the real like lived experience. The costume ball itself, total sham. Mm -hmm. Sure. Probably fun. important for the people in that town to give them something to do. Very important, which is why like, I, I really uh, resonated with the, the very end part of that quote, um, this miserable sham performance for the sake of all these people I did not know and did not want to see again. I don't like these people. <laughs> like, I don't even know these people. But because we're rich, we have to do it because it's custom and all, all these things. Yeah, I think it must be what it's like to be in uh, any position of high authority. Mm -hmm. right in, in this book it's that they're rich but I, I try to think about like sometimes because you know we have a, a certain we have a certain love for the Obamas and I don't want to like write anything onto their, their like world experience but you know I think about people like them I'm like I am sure that there were times when Michelle was like give me a break I do not care about these people right or you know what I'm saying like mm -hmm. Her book was one of one of the more recent ones I just finished too. And just, yeah, to, to that point, they had to put on these holiday parties every year. And I'm just like, that has to be laborious. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's fun to dress up, but I'm sure after a while it's like, mm, mm -hmm. I'm sort of done with all of this, you know? Mm -hmm. why, did you, why did you pull out this first quote? Um, oh, well, it was at, so to your point from earlier, it was very early in the book and it was a tone setter and Can you read it? yes, happiness is not a possession to be prized. It is a quality of thought, a state of mind. Mm. And I, I chose that one because you know, the main character is, is very, she's a dreamer, right? She had dreamed of Manderley. She had a postcard of Manderley when she was young. Um, she wondered what it would be like to be in that world. And she maybe thought that if she had ever got a taste of that, that would be happiness. And then she realized mm. that her experience when she finally got it was more miserable than anything. So from the outside looking in, you think that all of these things that you see other people have and other people do, it's very easy to say, oh man, they must be living the life, right? Yeah. And then you actually get that life and you're like, wait a minute, we have to do costume parties and we have to invite these people over to lunch all the time. In the book, they refer to it as like, we have to call on these people. Um, we have to it's more work than it is enjoyment. And so happiness isn't in things, it's in quality of life. Well, no, it's not even in quality of life, it's in quality of thought. Yes. And it makes, you, it makes you question whether the narrator felt like, what's wrong? 
Nothing. I just, I thought I heard the door. I'm fine. Wow. It, it does make you think about whether the narrator, yeah, like the difference between our dream of something and the reality on the ground type of thing. It's a philosophical statement right at the front end of the book that lays yeah. out, again, another central tension. That, that made me think about me. If, if, I, can, if I can use a, a personal experience here, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know what my, my long-term career goal is. Mm -hmm. um, it's to be a division one track coach. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that, in, in reading that, it made me think about myself because, you know, I have all of these visions in my mind right now of what that experience is going to be like. Knock on wood, it's going to happen, right? <laughs> but I have all these visions in my mind, like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to be at the national championships and we're going to, it's going to come down to the four by four and I'm going to, you know, give my team a great pep talk and we're going to win it. And, you know, so I, I think about these things all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I have all of this imagery in my mind right now. And then I don't know what it's actually going to be like when I, when I achieve that. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's going to be very stress-inducing. And I know it's going to be a lot of work. Um, and so I, right now, I, I work with our AAU team here. And last summer, I was just an assistant. Um, I, so I wasn't, I wasn't the, the man in charge. And so after last summer, um, the head coach decided to take a step back because he's been doing it for, you know, close to 10 years now. And he said, you're going to be, you're going to be the head coach moving forward. Now, even though I had thought about it, I had been planning for it in a sense, you know, doing all these things, keeping my binder of every bit of information that I had. I wanted it so badly because, you know, we've talked on a personal level and you know, like, I just want someone to give me a chance. And we talk right. about this all the time, like, oh, if I just get my foot in the door, if I can just get my foot in the door. Right. And then when he said that to me, it was a bombshell. Even though it's everything that I say I want, I was like, wait, I'm a head coach now. That comes with a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. I actually have to do X, Y, and Z. Right. <laughs> so bringing it full circle to a point that I made earlier with the, um, with the main character being a dreamer, I resonated with that because I'm like, we ask for these things and we just say it in passing like they're so simplistic. And then when we actually get them, realization slaps us in the face and we actually have to carry out everything that comes with those things that we say we want. I was like, man, and that was on page six. So <laughs> I can imagine what the rest of the book is gonna be like. Yeah, it's a good example, actually. And I think there are a lot of lines in the book where she drops in, the author drops in these kind of, and this is why literature is so great. Um, she drops in these sort of like philosophical statements about like this quote that you pulled out, right? Where it's like, you could, you could take this quote Happiness is not a possession to be prized. It is a quality of thought, a state of mind. And you could like 
I mean, I, I imagine it being printed on one of those like, you know, motivational posters or something, right? With like a picture of a tree standing alone in a, you know, field or something like that. You know what I'm mean? like those accessory things, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I thought I thought she did a good job about that. But I understand what you're saying. It's like we think something is gonna be one thing and then it's which is to that that's why I love having these types of conversations because everything comes back full circle. Um you had made a point earlier about you know, she is obsessed with Rebecca. Rebecca is always in her mind. Rebecca is always in her thoughts. And then that quote on page six was setting us up for the plot of the story. And then you just read it at the time and you just read it in passing. And then when you go back and actually, you know, go through those things that you highlighted and underlined and made notes about, it's like she, the author was trying to tell us what the whole plot of the book was gonna be in that one sentence. <laughs> so I'm like, why are you such a good writer? Like, who are you? But that goes back to when you said, oh, you felt like the plotting through of the first 80 pages was so hard. Mm -hmm. And I didn't appreciate it at first. Right. When I read, the, even when I read just the first two or three chapters, the reason I said I was hooked right away was because... I just, I knew what the author was doing. I could tell right away because it's classic Victorian novel form, right? Going back to what we started the conversation about is it's like you read these first pages and you think, what are these throwaway pages? But basically all, the whole novel is in like the first 20 pages. Really? And you just don't realize that the next you know, 375 pages of the novel are mm -hmm. going to be playing out those first, you know, whatever. Those mm -hmm. first. And even going back to like the whole, you know, the whole nature scene of, you know, the nature taking over and is it civilization or whatever the case is. I mean, we've had a fascinating conversation about, you know, character study today. This book is like a study of human character and how you can relate to people. And it, even those scenes with the plants at the beginning of the book, I was like, these plants are symbolic of something. They have to be, because she went into extreme detail. Yeah, so I'm like, what are, what are they symbolic of? Well, they're symbolic of like, okay, is, is some is something better when it's been like cultivated and pruned and made into something that it's not or is something better when it allows its its natural tendencies to sort of take place and that's kind of the question of the book right is it better for us to sort of like hide our inhibitions hide our jealousies you know prune that stuff away or is it better when we're just the people that we really are when we're our natural selves and there's a tension there um and there's not an answer right mm -hmm. again going back to anyone who reads this could come down on either side of that sort of question mm -hmm. the plants intermingling are sort of also like this idea of the classes intermingling i mean it's 
everything is symbolic in those first couple of pages of something else that comes up later in the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you're doing for time. I'm fine. Because I actually do want to talk about some more points. Yeah, I... No, I'm, I'm totally fine over here. Okay. I already blocked off this chunk of my day. Tell me, tell me another point that you want to talk about. Okay, so, and I made, I made it a point. So I wouldn't let you go anyway until we talked about this. <laughs> but I, I had a thought, right? So as I'm reading the book, I'm going through, I'm going through, I'm going through. And, you know, they finally go back to Manderley or whatnot. She gets to see it live and in person and so much of the book is talking about manderley manderley mm. manderley the rooms the things in the west room that are no longer in use how everything is covered up um things are left the way rebecca last left them right so my thought and i want to see how you interpret this is my my thought is that the author purposely did that because she was trying to illustrate that it's not as simple as it being the mansion. Like the mansion represents something in itself, I feel like, because if not, she wouldn't have kept bringing, bringing it up over and over and over again. So my thoughts about the West Wing is that the West Wing, West Wing represents something deeper than it just being a part of the house that they don't use anymore. For me, I read that as the author was illustrating how Manderley represents the mind. Hmm. Manderley represents your thoughts. And okay, interesting. There are parts of your life that you wish that you can just shut off and no longer use anymore, no longer think about. You can cover it up in white sheets and just completely forget that they exist. Yeah. But then there comes a time, and this time is totally random, you'll just be living your life and those things pop back up again. Um, because they, well, since Rebecca died, they no longer use the West Wing of the house because um, Maxim didn't want to remember Rebecca like that anymore. But then the main character goes snooping around and she finds their old bedroom in the West Wing. She gets lost or whatnot, stumbles into the West Wing, finds their, uh, their old bedroom and pretty much conjures up Rebecca again. So hmm. I, I looked at Manderley as being the symbol for, for the mind and how we sometimes want to forget certain things and then there's an event or something triggers us and it makes it come back to life again. And we're like, damn it, if I hadn't have gone, you know, if I hadn't gotten lost in that staircase, I would have never found the, the West Wing, but here we are. Yeah, that's an intriguing symbolic interpretation of Manderley. I, I had written down in my notes that I sent you that Manderley itself is a character in the book, mm -hmm. right? I, like I that, agree with that. The, the house, and, and again, this is kind of classic in these types of books, right? The house has a certain type of, there's this kind of like perception of what the house is. And it, it plays a part in the town or the county that it's located in 
the balls happen there, you know, all this kind of stuff. It could be a thing about the mind. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, it could be a thing about the mind because you said like the West Wing represents these kind of like tumultuous, difficult things that happen in our lives. The narrator goes and snoops around. She, she finds it. Um, it's always there. So like maybe the West Wing is like the subconscious. And it's also, you know, the way that they position the house is set up as the West Wing faces the sea. And the sea is like, you know, it's loud and tumultuous and all this kind of stuff. And you think it has to do with the fact that Rebecca drowned. And then the East Wing faces the Rose Garden, right? It's peaceful and all this kind of stuff. And um, there's actually a quote. Where is this quote? Maybe I put it in the nature section. No, I put it in Manderley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is on page 357. This is right before the end of the book. It's when they're packing up to leave the house. Mm -hmm. The narrator says, the peace of Manderley, the quietude and the grace, whoever lived within its walls, whatever trouble there was in strife, however much uneasiness and pain, no matter what tears were shed, what sorrows born, the peace of Manderley could not be broken or the loveliness destroyed which of course we know like 15 pages later, right. it bur it's burned down. Um, <laughs> so maybe it does have to do with the mind. Um, and just like there are those quiet parts of our mind where we would like to go to, but there's always this west wing of things that we don't want to think about that disrupt us. And yeah, like disrupt our quiet, disrupt our peace, um, all this kind of stuff. I also thought the West Wing was just part of the way that the book built suspense and mystery because it was like, oh, we don't use the West Wing. Mm -hmm. One shan't go to the West Wing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this, it's like this, um, the only vision I could have of it was like beauty and the beast, right? Like, Oh, you don't go up to that part of the castle because it's dangerous type of thing. Or in Harry Potter. I mean, this is like classic and all of these. So how do you think aside from the West Wayne, like how does the Manderley fit the other side of the brain? I think <clears throat> that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked it because it's going to make me think about it. So, okay, well, so let's first, first let's talk about the East Wing, I guess. On the East Wing is where their new quarters are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think from my interpretation, everything that they use is now in the East Wing, right? The library, uh, the main character's office, uh, the dining, the dining area, all that stuff is on the West Wing or the East Wing, I mean. So 
I think it also the East Wing represents present um, mm-hmm. reality right now. Mm-hmm. And as messy as the present may be, because like Maxim has a damn attitude all the time. So, so you know, as messy as the present may be, that even though it's messy, it's still reality. Mm-hmm. The West Wing, um, I w- that's comparable to the other places that she goes when she imagines things. Hmm. I don't know if that make it makes sense in my brain. I don't know if I articulated that properly, but East Wing is right now. West Wing are the things that she imagines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand what you're saying because we've talked about how she's like this dreamscape type of person. Mm-hmm. You know, West Wing might represent the past also, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's where Rebecca and Maxim lived. It's where Mrs. Danvers clearly stays over there. And it's been preserved in this particular type of way by Mrs. Danvers. Um, The library, of course, is my favorite room in the house. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. That that page, uh, those two pages where he describes the library or where the narrator describes the library, it's on pages like 66 or 67, 67 and 68. I love those pages. It's what I want my house library to be like someday. I, whenever I say I want a library in my house, I always picture it as one of these like spaces like that, you know? Mm-hmm. With the fireplace, you have the desk and the chair. The chair, yeah. And then like the floor to ceiling bookcases and the, the floor to ceiling windows and then the drapes that are drawn. And, you know, it's like you just have this like vision of the, uh, Oh, I, I like, for some reason, the, the part of the library that stood out the most to me, and it's just so random, but it's, it's just what was most prominent for me was the window seat. Because you rarely see those nowadays. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. The window seat. So I was like, that's the part because they always talked about, you know, I would go kneel on the window seat or I went up to the, you know, I sat on the window seat when I was having this stressful moment. I open the windows wide. I had to kneel on the window seat to do that. To so open was, the uh, windows, yeah. Yeah. The, the window seat is where he admitted to her that he killed Rebecca. So it's just like the window seat in itself had its own particular role. It does, yeah. That's kind of like this center point of activity. And the balconies, like, mm-hmm. oh, that, that scene on the balcony with Mrs. Danvers where I thought that she was going to put, I thought Mrs. Danvers was going to kill the main character, the narrator. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that to be a dream. I, I thought I was going to keep reading and she was going to be like, but then I snapped out of my dream. And then oh, when I realized yeah. that it wasn't a dream and she, that actually happened, I was like, Miss Danvers, like, you are a terrible person. Yeah. Why are you here? Nobody yeah. wants you here. Go away. Kill yourself. And she literally says, why don't you just kill yourself? I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and then, of course, suicide comes up again by the end of the book. Because mm-hmm. the original thing that they thought happened to Rebecca was that she committed suicide after they found the boat. Mm-hmm. Which I thought, again, so clever. 
everything that's another thing about the book that we didn't talk about was just the plot line with Rebecca herself. Mm-hmm. Who is she Rebecca? Was, she was her own character and she was dead. <laughs> so. But who was she? You brought this up. I mean, she was not a nice person and she was also kind of. I think it, that was all clarified for me when, when we got to the point in the book about, you know, she and Meryl, she and Maxim married one another and it wasn't, had nothing to do with love. It had to do with opportunity and power. And it was, it wasn't a marriage. It was an arrangement. I'm going to help you keep Manderly in order and I'm going to make it big and grandiose and I'm going to bring prestige to Manderly. I don't love you at all. But that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't even remember, maybe this is something you can clarify. How did they even meet? I don't think that that was ever spoken about. I don't think, I don't think you missed it. it. It was never spoken about. Yeah, I could never really understand how Maxim and Rebecca even found each other. I agree. It's clear in the book that once they got married... Mm-hmm. It was this arrangement thing. And she was in the power position, right? For Rebecca sure. was in the power position. Um, but Rebecca has a lot of terrible, you know, she has a lot of terrible flaws in the mm-hmm. sense that she's clearly manipulative. She's clearly power hungry she's painted in the front part of the book as this lovely woman Mm -hmm. who is worldly and all this kind of stuff, but she has all these terrible traits. And then I just thought a part of the book that was so, I don't know what the word is that I want to use here because I want to be sensitive about language, but she clearly was like one of these women who, let me start that over so that it doesn't come across the wrong way if it makes it into the cut edited version. Um, And she was in the power position and she used sex as leverage. Mm -hmm. Like she was clearly beautiful. And I just thought that the part like where Mrs. Danvers admits that she would invite all these men over to the house and just sleep with them or where she was sleeping with her cousin and they were in love, like you said, incest, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really like, what? And and, but it kind didn't of a, seem like Maxim had that much of an issue with it. He said, as you know, he would say, as long as it doesn't affect Manderly, I don't care what you do. Yeah, you you think so, but I wonder. And it's like it's the twist on the traditional plot line in the sense that in most books you would think it's the man mm-hmm. who is the one that's sleeping around 
and doing all of that kind of stuff. And in this book, it's Rebecca Mm -hmm. who's doing that. And I'm not putting any aspersions on her for that or anything like that. I'm not saying that she's a whore or, or anything like that. It's just that clearly based on custom of the time, that would have been seen as something very uncouth, right? Mm -hmm. And so they do come into this kind of secret pact to decide that they're not going to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. she goes off to London and does whatever she does and all this kind of stuff. Um, So she's just an interesting character again in terms of how do we feel about her by the end of the book it's just so the book is so exceptional to me because i remember all the fine details of the book usually when i read a book you know i remember the the more you know general things and like the little fine details it's like eh I remember some of them, some of them I don't. Um, And this book, I remember everything. Mm -hmm. And I was confused when you get to the part of the book and they, you know, Maxim is uh, confessing to the narrator and he's telling her how terrible Rebecca is. And that kind of threw me off because I'm like, well, wait, early on in the book, the narrator, when her and Maxim, they're still at Monte Carlo, um, and they're about to, that when they were courting each other mm-hmm. um, at that time, and she was in the car with him, and he left out of the car to go do something, and she found the book of poems. Oh, yeah. From, from Rebecca to Max. And that was such an intimate, love-filled filled moment because, you know, Rebecca left this book of poems you know, to Max from Rebecca, you know, the big, the big R that's, you know, prominent or whatnot. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like, she really loved him. And then you, you get down to the nitty gritty and Max was like, no, I hated her. So I was just like, wow. And it, and it makes you rethink the part of the book where, where right before they leave Monte Carlo, the narrator Max had lent her the book of poems and the narrator cuts out that page that Rebecca had inscribed to him and burns it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was the first moment in the book where I said, wait a minute, there's like some petty stuff going on here. Right. And what I thought was going to happen was that I thought that I agree with you. I thought, Oh, Max and Rebecca were in love. And Max is going to find out that this page was cut out from the book and it's going to cause drama in their relationship. That's what I initially thought. Mm-hmm. The, the author is so good in this book at setting you up as a reader to think that one thing is going to happen and then something completely different happens. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like what actually happens to Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I was convinced, as I told you, I was convinced that Rebecca was pregnant with Favel's child because there's that whole scene, again, it's like a little minor scene in the book or whatever, where 
uh, I think Max is like telling the, the narrator a story about this argument that they had had. Or no, maybe it was like he was recounting the, the, the night that he killed her. And Rebecca said something like, you know, oh, Max, you're not going to do anything. You know, I could, I could have a child with somebody else mm-hmm. and that he would be wouldn't the, it be yeah, and he would heir. be the heir but it wouldn't be your child and right there's nothing you could do and there's nothing it. you could do about it because you don't want the publicity and the drama around me you know, all the divorce and all the other stuff right so she's that's why i say she's rebecca was manipulative right mm-hmm. but the author drops that in there mm-hmm. to make you a hundred pages later think that Rebecca is pregnant with somebody else's baby mm-hmm. and that when Max kills her, he also kills the baby. Uh, no. And that's what I thought was going to happen was I was like, they're going to find out she was pregnant. There's going to be all kind of, you know, stuff around that. And then it's not what happens at all. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but, uh, no, like I can't, it's in, and it's, over time, you know, you read these books and you watch these, these suspense movies and things like that. And more often than not, like the plot is set up in a manner where, okay, I'm, you're not an idiot. You know how this is going to end. And more often than not, you're right. It ends the way you suspect that it's going to end. This book, though, nothing like that. <laughs> nothing like that at all. And then even like, I can't even say it enough, but then the author does such a good job of really making you like how she sets it up and the flow like, oh, well, clearly that's going to happen. That's the only logical thing. Nope. Not at all. Yeah. Like the end of the book, the house being burned down. I had to reread the, the last page like three times to finally get it. Because, and I think and then when you read it, like it's clear as day, the house burned down. But the reason that I had such a hard time grappling with that is because I refuse to believe that that's how it ended. So I'm like, let me read this a couple more times because this does not fit what I thought was going to happen. Well, also, I mean, I think the thing that the author does so well in the book is, is the way that she writes it, not only with these kind of twists and turns all through the book and these suspenses and these little droppings that get put in throughout that make you think one thing, but it turns out to be the other. But it's also the pace of the writing, especially at the end of the book. I mean, like I told you the other night Mm -hmm. when I was finishing this, I had to stay up and finish it because I was like, and I wasn't even sleepy. Right? I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And it becomes such a page turner Mm -hmm. towards the end. And you know that something is going to happen because there's the car drive back. That last chapter is just so good in wrapping it all up just the way that the front end of the book does in terms of being premonitory, right? Uh, Is that the narrator's asleep in the back. They had just, you know, gone to London and seen the doctor and found out Rebecca actually had had cancer. And so it made sense why she might've committed suicide and all this kind of stuff. And then he's like, Oh no, we're going to drive back tonight Mm -hmm. because he had called the house and Mrs. Danvers had left, 
you know, had packed up her stuff and left the house. And, and he had this feeling, the intuition thing. Mm-hmm. So the pace at the end of the book, man, was so good to me. Like he was driving really fast. She's having all these wild dreams, like bouncing back and forth between all these different things. And then, yeah, that last paragraph, and you're like, what? <laughs> I, and, and, and this is why I, I, I didn't get it at first. It didn't click for me because I 100% thought he, they're driving the car, you know, he's in a rush to get back to Manderley or whatnot. Because um, I think London was six hours away. Six hours, yeah. Yeah. So they were, they were in a rush to get back. And I thought the author was going to manipulate it in the, in the way that, you know, he just, you know, they just went to see the doctor. They, they beat the case. Um, he got away with murder or whatnot. And I thought that it was going to be one of those scenes where it's like, okay, he, um, he felt so guilty about it. He just couldn't live with himself. And, you know, he drove, he, you know, he crashed into a mountain and killed them both because he just couldn't live with the guilt. That's oh, what yeah, I yeah, thought yeah. was going to happen. And then, you know, you, you read that last paragraph and it talks about, what does it say? Red, a splash of blood. The, the sky was crimson. And then I, I called you and I was like, wait a minute. Did I read that right? And I read it again and again and again. And I was like, they done set the damn house on fire. Like, what? what? So like, that, yeah, th- this book. Five well, and, and the, use of the, the use of the word crimson is really important because it harkens back to when Max actually did murder Rebecca. And remember, he says, you, again, another great line that'll stick with you in terms of building the suspense, where he says, I forgot how much blood the human body contained. It, di- it didn't occur to me until after I shot her and mm-hmm. there was blood everywhere. And, and there's like this, you know, it's described in great detail about like, you know, the window was open and it was splattering the pools of blood all over the walls and like all this kind of stuff. And you just think, so blood being described there as crimson, crimson mm-hmm. from the fire, the you again, the use of color in this book is unbelievable. It's as simple as one word. It's one word and it carries all these different like back and forth, back and forth. Color is all through the book. The white, the white dress, the whiteness of Mrs. Danvers' face, she looks like a skeleton. The blue eyes of Favelle, the the blue of the rhododendrons, the blue bells. The, the blue of the dress. The that blue she of the dress. Um, the, even the, the wall of, this is another way that like red comes up in the book, is there's that whole wall of rhododendrons that are described as crimson red. Mm-hmm. And it's not natural, right? Somehow these were, these are not natural rhododendrons. They're mm-hmm. somehow manipulated. They're genetically, you know, shifted or modified or whatever language you want to use. And so it's really, it's so good. So I, I have a question and that kind of like tie, I think it ties the, the, 
a lot of the, the deep imagery pieces together. So when she goes back, like first page, we start right off, right off the bat. Um, last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. So I, I, I need you to help me unpack this because I wanna know what your thoughts are about that. Because in that whole you know, first chapter of the book, she's describing Manderley, everything's overgrown now. Everything, you know, she talks about the leaves. I, that's one thing I remember prominently from that part. She talks about the leaves. She talks about uh, the gravel along the drive and how, you know, there's weeds growing everywhere now. So that's the dream that she had about it, right? But then at the end of the book, you know, Manderley is burned down. So like, how do you make sense of all of that? Because, so it's like three parts to me. She had the dream and everything is ragged and all over the place. She actually goes there um, and it's beautiful, right? When she first gets to Manderley. And then at the end, we found out that Manderley is actually burned to the ground. So where do you put that dream piece? Like, where does that fit for you? What do you think the author was trying to do? The dream piece in the first chapter? Yeah, with, with the dream. She talks about the dream, but then at the end of the book, you know that it was burned down. So why do you think the, I guess the question that I'm trying to ask is why do you think that the narrator speaks about a dream of Manderley in, in existence, it's still standing, but the dream that she has about it is that it's overgrown and, you know, the gray. Ah, but see, but see, this is where I see what you're saying, but see, this is where, and this is why I said the first chapter is so important in terms of the first chapter tells you what will happen at the end, the first two chapters really, because like on page three, for example, mm -hmm. and I wish that I knew how to, okay. I never know how to say this word, sepulcher. I think it's um, sepulcher. What paragraph is it? This is the very bottom paragraph. Okay. Okay, so this starts on page three. Um, the house was a sepulcher. Our fear and suffering lay buried in the ruins. Mm -hmm. There would be no resurrection. When I thought of Manderley in my waking hours, I would not be bitter. I should think of it as it might have been, could I have lived there without fear. I should remember the rose garden in summer and the birds that sang at dawn, tea under the chestnut tree, and the murmur of the sea coming to us from the lawns below. I would think of the blown lilac and the happy valley. These things were permanent. They could not be dissolved. They were memories that cannot hurt. All this I resolved in my dream while the clouds lay across the face of the moon. For like most sleepers, I knew that I dreamed. In reality, I lay many hundreds of miles away in an alien land and would wake before many seconds had passed in the bare little hotel bedroom, comforting in its very lack of atmosphere. Um, I think the reason that she does this is because like when she says, that, when the author says this line about you know, everything is ru in the ruins. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. I, I didn't even remember that. Right. There would <laughs> be right. There would be no resurrection. Um, but I can't be bitter about it. So, and and so she she does it because the author is trying to help set the reader up for for the fear and stress that come with the place itself right Mm -hmm. from the first pages and then is also clearly like talking about what would it be like to go back there and see that you know nature has reclaimed everything and it goes back to this question that I was raising about her imagination. She was imagining, oh my God, it makes so much sense. So, and, and it's also like, okay. So she was actually talking about the burned down house, but then she was talking about how everything had grown over it. And it, oh my, the pros of this book, I can't make sense of it. Like, well, it's just, it's great storytelling. I mean, it's exactly why these types of books are so entertaining why people still read them you know i mean well now this book was published almost a hundred years ago but why do people still read these books because look we've just spent almost three hours now talking Mm -hmm. about this book right which i had a thought Mm -hmm. i had a thought right this book is 380 pages I feel like this book, I don't know if this makes sense. This book is really 760 pages jammed into 380 Mm -hmm. because there's so many other things we could talk about. That's how like intricate and like, I don't know. I just don't, I can't even put into words like how great of an author (laughs) this person is. Have you read any of her other things? I haven't. I haven't. But this definitely makes me want to, for sure. Yeah, like I said, I went and I researched the author because I had never heard of the author. Mm -hmm. And again, like this is why the podcast for me is so great because every single book so far is a book I haven't read. Some that I had heard of the authors, but I never heard of this author. Mm -hmm. And... She's wildly popular. I mean, mm-hmm. her books are so it's just one of these things where you go, wow, how did you, how did I not? And I was also curious, I was going to ask you this way back at the beginning. I would like to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Why do you think your high school teacher assigned this book? Um. I don't know. I hadn't, I hadn't given that much thought. I, I remember Mr. Edrington uh, very vividly, though, because he was so, um, as we would say, different. Uh, um, he was eccentric? Oh, yeah. Uh, what? That's, I don't even think eccentric does it justice. But he was, he was very, we read in that class a lot of things that are, we didn't read the typical things that you read in high school. He was not, he was not about that. We didn't do a lot of Shakespeare and uh, Dickens, you know, the, the things that are just continuously just put in rotation. Right. Like, oh, every high schooler reads Shakespeare. Like, no, he was not about that. Everything that we read was eclectic. 
and very wild, just wildly different. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why he would have had us read that in, in the 10th grade, but. I mean, especially because I was thinking about, you know, you grew up in Thibodeau mm-hmm. and having lived in Louisiana and like just understanding something about the culture of that place. This book seems so, it just doesn't seem like a book that I would have placed into that, right? I, I am just, I'm surprised even that parents weren't raising holy hell about the fact their kids were reading this book. Even though I think I can see now, like it's an excellent book for a high schooler to read. It's full of imagery. It's full of great use of language. It's got a terrific plot line. It's easy to read. It's entertaining. All the things that you said at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But, but some of the stuff is very contentious and problematic. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. Even the racism stuff, which we didn't spend a lot of time talking about, but you know, there is racism in the book, like people dressing up in blackface and mm-hmm. wearing costumes and stuff. So, so there are things, but I, I sort of fall on the side. This, like that part of the book, for example, gets into this whole debate about whether people should read Mark Twain, for example, or whether they shouldn't read Mark Twain when they're in high school, right? Because uh, Mark Twain is, is pretty racy, right? Yeah, so if you yeah. read a book like Huckleberry Finn, for example, like that book is very racist and mm-hmm. it's very, it uses the N-word and it's got all kinds of like racial epithets and other stuff, but people still assign it in high school. Yeah, I and, <laughs> and And I think it's a perfectly fine book for people to read because I don't think that we should shy away from those topics with young people. But I know that increasingly in some parts of the world, people think, oh, we should never talk about race with people. We should never talk about murder. We should never talk. No, you should talk about those things because they're realities. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I don't know if you knew why he had assigned it. Are you still in touch with him at all? No, I, I haven't spoken to him since high school. I don't even know. I don't know anything about where he is or if he's still there. I, I think I heard some time ago he had left, but... Yeah. But to your point about Louisiana, though, I don't think he was from Louisiana. And that might have something to do with it. Right. Yeah. Well, I loved, loved the book so much. So good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Because, you know, I was freaking out about it early on. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, are you going to like the book? Because, like, usually you're the one who's suggesting books to me. So, like, I couldn't swing and miss with this one. So... <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I am so glad I reread it because um, there's so much that I have forgotten about since the 10th grade, obviously. But then actually, on a side note, I don't think I actually read the book all the way through in high school. Huh. When I reread it again, I'm like, there's no way I would have forgotten that had I read it all the way through. I think I probably read majority of it and then I was pressed for time and I just skimmed the rest. But I don't think I actually read it all the way through in high school. So I'm glad I did now. Because that ending, I would have remembered that for sure. Because it's just so not what you expect. Maybe. I don't know. 
that this is where I think memory is tricky about like what we remember about books. And I'm instinctively fascinated by not instinctively fascinated, wrong word choice. I think that oftentimes, even the books that I love the most in my life, I don't always remember all the details of it. I remember the experience of it. And that's what you seem to have to have ex, uh, talked about at the beginning as well, mm-hmm. is that you remember this book be, being something that brought you great joy, mm-hmm. great pleasure. The time went by fast. Or, or you had this experience that we sometimes talk about where you felt like time just went by and there wasn't anything... You know, it didn't feel like it was drudgery, in other mm-hmm. words, right? And I think that's true of the books that we end up remembering in our lives as being the most impactful books. We don't always remember all of the plot lines. Mm-hmm. We just remember it being impactful. Like, there's a book I want to go back and read at some point where that I had this experience with that you had, but it's a book from college. And... I just remember the book being, I don't remember any details of the book, Leo, not mm-hmm. one detail. I just remember the book being something that I was like, this is always going to be a pleasurable book. It's, it's a book by Isabella and they called the house of the spirits. And um, I need to go back and reread it because I just remember that same experience. And you know, ironically, it's a little paperback book like this, you know, mm-hmm. I have something else, something else that I remembered about this book, because I have a copy of it um, back home in Thibodeau. I don't even know if it's even at home anymore. I haven't been home in a long time. Um, But this isn't because, you know, obviously there's multiple versions of books. Um, This isn't even the original book that I had in high school, because the original book that I had um, was embossed. And so Rebecca was embossed and this is like a yellowish you know goldenrod mm-hmm. type color the book that i had back in high school it was like gold the name was written in just gold hmm. and so when i got this one in the mail i was kind of disappointed because i was expecting that <laughs> so you so. should try to find that book from home you should have one of your siblings or whatever mm-hmm. see if they can find it and mail it to you yeah because I, I when yeah when I got this one I was like oh it's not the one I remembered, but man I can't even can't say enough about it. I'm so glad you liked it. I loved it. It was great. I don't know if you do this, but I'll ask anyway. Um, how do you rank this book? Oh well, I gave it five stars on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. I loved it that much. Uh, it's very rare for a book to get five stars from me. Really? It really is rare. Um, because I, I, I really try to, you know, rankings are difficult and I think it's, it's stressful. Um, Emma talked about this last week when she was talking. I don't know if that made it into the edited version or not, but in the long form, she talked about how it's stressful to edit books, but, or to rank books, but, no, I, I right away, I was like, this, I gave it five stars. I think it's incredibly well-written. 
super intense and suspenseful, great plot twists. It's, it's a good plot book. It's a good narrative book. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. It's entertaining. It's just pleasurable. It just, it was a great, it's wonderful. I'm so glad that I read it. I'm so glad that you introduced me to it. Um, and you're, you're a obviously well-read person. So the fact that you hadn't even heard of the book, I was like, okay, we got to read this one. Yeah. And like I said, on on right. And that's, again, it goes back to what I said about the podcast in general. It's just that it's amazing to me how I never heard of this book. Mm-hmm. But clearly people have read it again. I say, I feel like I say this every week uh, on the podcast now. Um, so I'm not trying to like say the same thing over and over again, but it's got tens of thousands of reviews on Goodreads, which is like the, the reading app that I use. And it uses a five-star rating system. And I think if I remember correctly that it has almost like a 4.5 or something Mm. on, and there are tens of thousands of reviews. So that means that mostly people gives it, give it four and fives in terms Mm -hmm. of the value of the book, the importance of it. And, you know, there's like this stuff on the cover here, like you have the same copy of me as me, you know, the unsurpassed modern masterpiece of romantic suspense you know, and you think, and on the back, it says one of the best selling novels of all time. And you think, well, this is printed on every book cover, but I believe this probably really is. Yeah. It's so good. Good times. (laughs) Good times for sure. Do you have any closing thoughts, anything you wanted to say that was burning that you really felt like you had to say? No, I mean, other than if for all of, all of the listeners, if you have not um, read this book, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, um, I would definitely suggest reading it. It's not anything like you've read before. I'm, I'm confident in saying that. I don't think it's like anything you've read before. I agree. It was a great choice, and I, I hope people pick it up. I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been amazing. No doubt. No doubt. And I want to say, you know, um, congratulations for getting the podcast started. This has been, uh, it was a thought for a long time. And the fact that you have finally done it and you're already on episode six of the R series um, is a big deal. So I just want you to know as your best friend, I'm very proud of you. I can't wait to see. what it becomes and because you know we we have vision here right so it's going to become this big thing one day and i'm glad to have been able to be a part of the uh the early stages so i'm very proud of you and i look forward to the future well thanks for being on and thanks for supporting it and always giving me the nudge to do it and i'm glad you'll be part of the r series yep one of the earliest uh because i i agree i think it'll take off and I'm really excited because we've got four more episodes in the R series and then, well, of the original 10 people. Mm -hmm. And then we'll start branching out into 
the guests that were invited by the original 10. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really fun because already I've invited those people and, you know, they're gotten a lot of um, reception. They've had, they all agreed so far. Yeah. Um, And yeah, except yeah, they have. And I think that people are, intrigued by the idea of the podcast and even yesterday i went to the imprint book club virtually and i got in a little bit late and the people that were alan was in the the group and he was from episode two of course r2 and he was just talking about how he listens to it and he loves hearing the conversation and he was talking about Rick's episode and how after he listened to Rick's episode, he had never read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So he went and read the book and then he watched the movie and he did all this kind of stuff. And so like, you know, regardless of what happens, like I told you success for me, when I took a podcasting class last summer, Sarah Werner had said, you know, you have to define for yourself what is success. And and be happy with that. And for me, like success is just in the fact of having good conversations with the people. Like I've been having three hour conversations, Mm -hmm. um, talking about books in depth. So it's already been a success, even if it doesn't like quote unquote blow up. Although I Mm -hmm. think it it could, we'll Mm -hmm. see. I'm going to be optimistic about it. And Oh yeah. You know, so I appreciate you. Thanks for taking three hours out of your day. It's a um, and many hours reading. (laughs) I know it's been start the semester again, so this has been a welcome break from that. I agree, I totally agree, and I wish you good luck with the start of the term. Of course, I'll be talking to you every day, so it'll be all good. (laughs) Right, right. Awesome. Alrighty. Thank you. No problem.